What's up, guys? It's Chad Hermanson. Welcome back to the channel. Today, I got a very special guest, two-time World Series champion, Aaron Rowan. Aaron, how's it going, dude? Good, buddy. Good to see you. Yeah, man. Two-time World Series champions. I'm sure that hand is a little heavy. You probably don't wear your rings, though, right? Oh, yeah. I'll wear them out. Not only <laughs> special occasions. I don't want to lose them, man. You, you know, it's kind of a pain in the butt to try to get it replaced. Yeah. So, so Aaron and I met, um, we're, we're the same age. We graduated, I think, high school the same year, 95. Uh, you went to Cal State Fullerton out of high school. Uh, that was the better route for you at the time. Walk us through, you know, what was your experience like at Cal State Fullerton? It was amazing. Um, you know, I actually got, I mean, I, by my senior year, I was getting letters from all over the place, you know, all sorts of schools and stuff. But I had gone to a baseball camp, baseball summer baseball camp at Cal State Fullerton, and had the opportunity to re, uh, to meet Rick Vanderhook, who is now the head coach uh, there, but used to be the hitting coach and like outfield coach. And uh, I just really got along with the coaching staff there, uh, and so I was always kind of leaning that way. Uh, I got, but anybody who's ever gone through the scouting process. Um, you know, you hear scouts come, they come into your house and they give you the tests and and then they tell you what they think you kind of want to hear and they try to get a feel for whether you're going to go pro or you're going to go to college, right? You know, and that at that time, I wanted to go pro. I wanted to play pro ball. Who doesn't, right? If you have yeah. the opportunity. Yeah. And my parents kind of on the side were telling the scouts and stuff that he's more than likely going to college. And so... Going through everything, you know, they say, you know, you should be a top three round pick. You know, they said I was going to be a top three round pick. And I think my signability wasn't quite there. So I ended up slipping all the way down to the 39th round. And the Mets uh, actually drafted me in the 39th round. And then it was kind of a draft and follow thing. Yeah. And so they watched me play summer ball all year and then came back and actually offered me triple digit or six figures in the 39th round just to try to get me to sign. Right. And I was like, no, I'm going to go to college because I had a good relationship with them. And my freshman year, you know, you were talking earlier about like having going through the, the journey of, of, you know, baseball. There's so much failure involved in baseball that it's how you deal with it that's going to make you a better player. Right. And there are certain moments in my career where I had to check myself and try to figure out if I still wanted to play baseball. I almost quit a couple times. And while, while in college? Well, the first time that I ever felt like that was my freshman year. And Augie Garrido was the head coach there. Yeah. And Augie was a stern guy. I loved him. He was a, he was a great mentor and, and a great baseball coach. So I went, to, I went in there as a freshman. I was the only freshman in, our, in my class there that didn't redshirt. They redshirted everybody else. Uh, and they moved me from shortstop, where I played in high school, to third base. And third baseman that was there in front of me was a senior that year on the national championship team that had won the, the World Series the year before. Okay. So not a real good opportunity <laughs> to get some playing time right away. And so I had a really good fall swing in the bat, and they had seen me play a little outfield at that baseball camp that I went to. So they moved me to the outfield. They said, do you want to play outfield? I said, if I can get it back, sure. And so at the time, Mark Kotze was playing center field. Jeremy Giambi was in right field. And so they moved Jeremy to left and put me in right field. Okay. And so I started the season off really swinging the bat well. And then one evening and 
in Southern California, we were playing University of Arizona, and a guy hit a line drive to right center. <clears throat> there was dew on the grass. I tried to get around it. It skipped, hit my glove, went to the fence, and all the like three runs score. And then the next day, I was DHing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, did, I never saw the field again, man. They were like, see it. And uh, I, I did that. I DHed. Stupid freshman, right? Exactly. <laughs> I was getting like 450 at the time. It was like the third series of the season, you know? And uh, so I DHed for another three weeks. And I think I got like one hit. And then I got two at-bats the rest of the season. I mean, he just basically gave up on me. And so but by one play, you, you felt like you got buried in a way. Well, I got it, it's not like he didn't give me an opportunity to hit. It was the fact because I was really swinging the bat good when I was playing defense. But as a young player, like a freshman in college, who knows how to DH? Yeah. You know? And there's not like there's a tunnel to go down and take swings in between your bats. So it was a new learning process for me. And I'll be honest, I stunk. Mm. And pretty soon I found myself out of the lineup and then it continued and continued. Like I said, the rest of the season, I got two at-bats. And luckily, I had signed to go play in Cape Cod before the season started for that coming summer, and uh, which is that wood bat, the wood bat league out there. And so there was a time towards the end of the season, it got my last at-bat of the season, and I punched out. Looked like the guy was throwing a million, and he was only throwing <laughs> like 86 because I had seen a bat in a long time. Yeah. And I remember going out, sitting in my truck, man, and just crying my eyes out, wondering, is this worth it? Is this what I want to do? I sat out there for a couple hours in an empty parking lot after a game doing some soul searching. And I, I finally decided that I wasn't going to let anybody else tell me what I could or couldn't do. And so I actually, season got done. I went out, played Cape Cod, had a really good season out there, made the all-star team. So I made a phone call to USC and coach, um, I started calling, talking to him, and he actually, even as late in the summer as it was, worked out a scholarship for me and got stuff together where I only had to pay for my living expenses, okay. which was amazing. And so started trading emails with him, and then I got my transcripts. Literally, I was getting ready to go to the field one day for one of the games, and I had it all sealed up with all my transcripts. I was going to drop it in the post office box on the way to the field. 15 minutes before I left, Coach Horton, who was the assistant coach at Fullerton at the time, okay. calls me and says, listen, I, Aaron, I know you've been talking to USC. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I didn't tell anybody. They're like, no, we, they, they have to tell us. I was like, oh, yeah, I felt dumb. Yeah. But, uh, he goes, no, I, I haven't. Talk. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? I don't know. <laughs> coach Gillespie, that's who I was talking about. And so Coach Horton from Fullerton calls me and – says, I know that you've been talking with them. I know Coach Carrito didn't give you much of a chance last year, but I want you to be the first to know that he's leaving and going to Texas, and they're going to name me the head coach. And he goes, and if you want to come back here, I promise you you'll be my right fielder every day. Mm. And I was like, well, I can't say no to that. You know <laughs> what I mean? And so I, I had to make the worst phone call in the world and call Coach Gillespie back at USC and say, thank you very much for everything you've done and the effort that you made. But – Coach Horton just called me, and I think I'm going to stay. And he's like, I, like, this guy's got unbelievable integrity. He just was like, you know what, Aaron, I wish we could have had you, but I wish you nothing but the best. Yeah. And I was like, that is probably one of the coolest things of all time. Mm -hmm. And so I went through college, ended up getting drafted, and, and something – you might remember this from high school, but, you know, everything's rah, rah, rah in high school and every, about the team and everything else. 
and trying to win, you know, a state championship or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you can attest, you get drafted and you go to minor league ball. <laughs> and you're like, everybody's all about themselves, man. Who cares if you win? Just trying to get to the big leagues. That's right. all there is to it. And that was really tough for me mentally because I was always, I've always been about winning. And how do you win? You have a good team. You pull for each other. Everybody pulls on the same end of the rope, all those types of things. So it's kind of shell shock going to minor league ball. Mm -hmm. Because, like, somebody hit a home run, dude, and I'd be like the – one guy by the helmet rack, like, dude, nice, nice <laughs> that, bro. Everybody else is sitting down. Yeah. Like yeah. nobody cared. And I was like, geez, this is tough. Mm -hmm. And well, the, the fun part about it is though, that finally once you make it to the big leagues, all of a sudden it's a team game again. Isn't that you know, weird? It, it's so weird. Like yeah. everybody goes from being an individual trying to get to the big leagues and then you get there. And now everybody's like, all right, we got to be a team. It's like, all right, well, I like this a lot better than my league stuff. So <laughs> it was good, man. But there's so many times through the down, you know, on the road to where you're going, all the way up the chain, however far anybody gets to, where you're gonna slump, man. Like this is the only game that you can fail seven out of ten times and be a Hall of Famer. You know, if you're a basketball player and you made three out of ten shots, man, you're out. <laughs> so like you're in how trouble. You learn how you learn how to deal with that failure is I think the probably the biggest reason people either make it or don't as far as guys who get drafted and then trying to make it to the big leagues, how you deal with failure. Like you got to have like the shortest memory in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so much, it's so easy to swing at a bad pitch in the dirt and go, all right, don't swing at that pit. Don't swing at the slider in the dirt. And then he throws another one. Then you swing at it again, you know? <laughs> like, well, it was a strike for 95% of the time. And then yeah. it went that way. <laughs> yeah. But like, that's the mental part. Like you got to have a short memory. You got to take a bad swing and chase a bad pitch and go, okay, I'm going to get back into my zone and then focus on what I, what I need to do. Yeah. It's just like, it's just like if you strike out your first two at bats in the game, what are you thinking the third time? I don't want the hat trick. Just don't strike out. What are you going to do? You're going to strike out. Strike out. You're done. All day long. <laughs> and so like that, that's the mental part of the game that I think the people that, that finally do grasp that at some point through their minor league career, those are the guys that end up going and making it, or at least making it to AAA or making it close or getting a call up or whatever. But, you know, a lot of guys play in the minor leagues for a few years, and then it's not until right before they're about ready to get released that they start to figure it out. But by that time, you got four or five classes of players already in front of you that they're paying, the organization's paying more attention to. So it's like, how fast can you figure out the mental side of hitting? Because obviously everybody's got enough physical gift. If you've already gotten drafted and are playing professional baseball, you probably have some pretty good, pretty good makeup and talent and like inability to do things. It's the guys that figure it out mentally that I think start to move up. And if they, the sooner they figure it out, the better they are. No doubt. You played with, I was kind of looking at your career with these. I mean, you played with some big teams, World Series type teams. I'm assuming you had some struggles in the big leagues, right? You had maybe those 0 for 20s, 0 for maybe 0 for 30s. What were those like? I went 0 for 30. I think I got a broken bat hit in between there sometimes. <laughs> That's how you get out of it usually, right? Yeah, but get it, a fist through the swing bunt down the third base line. There you go. Did you have, you know, you obviously you have your hitting coaches. Did you have any players that, helped you out personally in your big league career, you know, maybe mechanically, maybe in the head as well, mentally, any stories about that? Yeah, I would say, you know, 
as you know, you know, you go to, you don't just all of a sudden don't go to big league camp and end up in the big leagues. Like you go, most guys, almost, well, 99.9% of people have been to big league camp before they ever have a chance to get called up to the big leagues. Yeah. So you get to know the people on the team, you know, you're in the dugout with them during spring training before you get sent back down to the minor league, stuff like that. Um, so I had some, that first, that first year, there was like three or four guys on that team who I had kind of over the three years prior being at big league camp, I had kind of become close with. And one of them actually, uh, Jeff Leifer went to Long Beach state and he went to Upland high school. So like he played in the same league that I did in high school. He was older than me, but, um, so we had a lot of stuff in common. And, and when I got called up, probably some of the best information I got were from guys like Jeff Leifer, Tony Graffinino, who was a utility infielder with us, Paul Canerco. Uh, I was tight with those guys, Mark Johnson, who was a catcher. Uh, I was tight with those guys. So we would go to dinner and stuff. You know how it is. Like you're on the road uh, after the games, you go out, grab something to eat if you didn't eat at the field or go down to the hotel bar, have a couple beers and just talk. Mm-hmm. And like talk baseball, talk about the game that night, what happened. Talk about the pitcher who threw against us. Talk about situational stuff in games. Who are we facing tomorrow? What does he throw? Stuff like that. And then if you really want to get intellectual, you talk to Paul Konerko because this guy, <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I have never seen anybody who is such a mental, I wouldn't call him a basket case. I'd say that he's, he's so like cerebral, man. Like, like most guys go and have a plan and they're smart, but they go up and like they don't kill themselves if they go one for four, oh for three or something. Like this guy, he took every single swing in it bat back home with him to his hotel room or to his house every day. Okay. Like, and just go psycho about it. Like he, he was so entrenched in it. I've never seen somebody like that have as much success in the big leagues as him. So he figured it out. He, he beat himself up a lot, but was still a borderline oh, Hall of Fame player. Oh, yeah. He's, and he's, a, he's an amazing friend, an amazing player. But we would sit there and you would get into conversations. He was probably the first person uh, in my career as a player who, who, when we sat down, we would talk about how pitchers are trying to set you up. What are they going to throw in this count? Like we would be sitting in the dugout during the game and somebody else is hitting and, and we would watch pitch sequences. And, you know, pitchers aren't just trying to get you out of the first pitch. I mean, they'd love to if you're going to offer at it. But – they're going to try to get ahead of you in order to set you up to get you out. And so it's like they're working their way until they're going to make that pitch that they set up. I never thought anything about that until my rookie year in the big leagues. And I can say, I can tell you, I mean, hundreds of hours of just one-on-one conversations with him about pitchers, tendencies, pitch sequence. How are they going to try to get you out? When they throw you the fastball up here, one, two, what do you think they're coming back with? Slider, mm-hmm. curveball, change up, down. All those things, like up until that point, I just, I mean, I mechanically was sound. I had great hitting coaches. I had a decent plan at the plate, but I never broke it down to that extent the way that he explained to me. And he taught me a ton uh, about that. Another guy who I happened to play with only for one year because we signed him halfway through the year when I got called up was Jose Canseco, believe it or not. Yeah. And Canseco 
he was one of the smartest hitters. And he just he was DHing for us. It was his last year in the big leagues. But we would sit, same thing with him. And he'd start talking about pitch sequences and how the pitchers are going to try to get us out. And he'd go watch. And then he would call out pitches. I was like, you know, I thought he was just this big behemoth that just <laughs> dropped bombs. I had no idea how smart he was as a hitter. And he, he gave a lot of that knowledge to me. So, you know, you kind of got to be fortunate to have good hitting coaches and good teammates that are willing to put themselves out there in order to teach the young guys. No, that's huge. I mean, look, everything you just said, like I, me personally, maybe there's some other people, people that feel the same way that experience some big league time. I never had those conversations. Um, and not, not to say that was a veteran's fault or anything, or, but I didn't ask either, you know? Yeah. So it was kind of like, okay, I'm just going to go hit, look at, look for fastball, maybe middle away, and hopefully I can drive it to right center. But no, I mean, that's a whole difference of what's the big leagues about. Like these guys are like playing chess with you. They know. That's it. That's exactly what it is. Man. It's a chess match. It's a cat and mouse game. Yeah. It's like this guy is going to show you a pitch on purpose to get you to swing at the next one. Right. And like, I never had any of those conversations until I got to the big leagues. And, you know, as through my career, I tried to pass that down to the, to the younger guys who were coming up while I was playing. And like, it, it, it's amazing how you guys, I mean, you know, as well as I do, the difference between major league pitching and say college pitching or a ball pitching, they're going to hit their spots a lot more often with more consistency than the younger players who don't have quite the, the control yet. Right. They might have electric stuff, but when you get to the big leagues, you got guys with electric stuff that know where they can put it where they want to put it. All right. That's how they set them up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Except for the fastball in, and I tried to tell everybody that my entire life. I don't care who it is. If, you got a, if you're up there and a guy goes, one, two, three, on the inside corner, tip your hat and say, I'll see you in a bit. Right. Because big league pitchers can't even put three in a row on the inside corner at your kneecap. So why look for it? And mm -hmm. so trying to instill a lot of that stuff in the guys that came after me, um, it was instilled in me you know, they're going to make mistakes too, and you can't give them too much credit. But you got to think along the lines with them. Like, because they can hit their spots a lot, a lot more than lower levels at a pretty consistent rate, if they – here's the hardest thing, and I'll tell you, I know it's changed a little bit in the minor leagues because they have more video stuff now. More games are televised. Um, I mean, I think it started right after I got to the big leagues. But um, – the biggest difference that I noticed is like you could be playing a three game series in Anaheim against the angels, jump on a plane and you play that three game series and you're just crushing fastballs away. Mm -hmm. But every now and then, like maybe about halfway through the series, like they threw one in and then you got fisted. Well, what they do the rest of the, the rest of the games, they start fisting you. Right. You know, they've got, <laughs> Oh, well he's crushing it away. So we're going to come in here. And as a hitter, sometimes you feel more comfortable with the ball away or, and it reverses and sometimes tougher away and you feel really good on the ball in. Well, you could go from Anaheim and that, that last game, you go 0 for 4 because they figured out what you're really not comfortable with right now. You jump on a plane and fly to New York to play the Yankees, and guess what? They already know. They know, yeah. Yeah, it's not like – advanced scouting reports. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, you could fly all the way across the country and they already know. And so you go out there the first game and they're wearing you out in. So as a hitter, 
it's up to you to be able to make an adjustment because once they find out what in that moment or for some people just fundamentally they can't hit a certain pitch like you have to be you have to be able to adjust and so once that other side the pitching side of it figures out what you're struggling with they are just going to wear you out until you prove to them that you are making an adjustment and once you do then they're going to go somewhere else and try to find another hole in your swing but that's the hardest i i remember people saying when i was coming through the system and in college you know it's not really hard to get to the big leagues. It's hard to stay in the big leagues. I remember hearing that over and over again. And it wasn't until I got there that I finally realized I understand why now. Right. Because you can get there, but once you're facing pitching that has control and good stuff, and they wear you out on something you can't make an adjustment to, you're going to either find yourself back in the minor leagues real quick, or you're going to be hitting a buck 10. Mm-hmm and then gone you have to be able to make an adjustment and so that was the hardest part of staying in the big leagues was like we were saying earlier it's a cat and mouse game it's it's looking at videos looking at your passive bats against a certain guy uh looking at the the last three starts of that he's made because maybe he's made an adjustment and maybe he's throwing a different pitch or he's leaning more heavily on a certain pitch than he did the last time you faced him it's always trying to stay ahead of the curve and as a hitter, recognizing what are they consistently doing to me right now that's getting me out. All right, so that's what I need to go work on in the cage or in batting practice and whatever to be able to show them that I can hit that pitch and now they're going to be searching again. And that's when you get hot and then you can, you can make a run. Right. But unless you're able to make that adjustment, man, those pitchers at that level, they'll just abuse you. No doubt. What would you say – is there anything that changed in your approach, let's say from a hitter when you were in high school, right, to the big leagues? A lot happens there. Did you have an approach in high school, and how did that change in pro ball? Well, as, as a high school player, you know, I found, well, through the system and through the, through the minor league system and through some really good hitting coaches that I had in the minor league system and then even in the big leagues, <clears throat> and then manager like Charlie Manuel in Philadelphia, Unbelievable hitting coach. He's like my mentor, him and Greg Walker, who is our hitting coach in, in Chicago. But in high school, like my whole, as simple as it sounds, but that's exactly what it was in high school was, I'm going to try to drive the piss out of the ball to dead center field. <clears throat> and then I'm not, lo- I'm, obviously I'm looking for a fastball, but I'm just going to adjust to whatever else they throw. It was that simple. Okay. And it was kind of the same way in college. I mean, maybe I, I, tried to hit, I tried to hit the ball a little bit more to right center than just straightaway center field. Why? Because the breaking stuff got better yeah. on the Division One level. <laughs> so you make an adjustment. Yeah. <clears throat> and then uh, I carried pretty much that through the minor leagues until I got uh, with Greg Walker in Charlotte and AAA. And we started talking more about – where before it was kind of like, I'm just trying to look for the fastball and I'm going to drive it up the middle. It's not like I had a real direction. I'm just trying to stay in the middle of the field, basically. Right. Whereas when I got older and I got to the big leagues, I was AAA big leagues, um, what I got taught through a lot of conversations with, with Greg Walker 
was that you got and and Mike Gellinger was also uh, like an assistant hitting coach with us. We started talking more about not only are you looking for a pitch in a zone, you're looking for a pitch in a zone, a certain pitch, a fastball in a zone, and you're trying to hit it with direction. Okay. And what that enables you to do is it puts your body in the right position, one, to be on that fastball if it's there, but two, if they throw something off speed to you, your body's still in a good position to lag the ball, and then you're probably going to pull it, but you're going to juice it. You right. know what I mean? So it's about a thought process with an approach that puts your body in the right position to handle the most pitches. And it's like I said earlier, you know, very rarely did I sit on a breaking pitch. There are certain situations, you know, runner on second and two out in your tie game or down by one is an open base. Yeah, he probably doesn't want to throw you a fastball. He doesn't care if he walks you. Might be a situation to look for an off-speed pitch. <clears throat> but most of the time it's fastball, uh, but in a direction to put my body in the right spot and all that kind of stuff. Like I'll give you an example. So with less than two strikes, there's nothing wrong with hitting a fastball middle away, just left of the center fielder towards left center. So I was looking from a, just left of the center fielder to right center field. And I'm going to give them the inside third of the plate. And I'm looking out or two thirds. Now, when I got two strikes, it changed. I would get on the plate, and I was still looking out or two-thirds, but now instead of trying to go from right center to just left of center, I'm trying to hit a line drive at the right fielder, like literally right at the right fielder. All that does is it gives me that much more time to be able to recognize an off-speed pitch. And now if he throws you a fastball in the inside corner, you fight it off or you get rung up. But that's what happens with two strikes. And so that enables me to cover the most pitches. If I have a if I have a approach in a direction like that, I can hit the fastball, I can hit the slider, I can hit the changeup, I can hit the breaking ball. The only one that I'm gonna have a tough time with is the ball in the inside corner. Now, if I happen to be on time, I'm gonna let it eat and go. Mm -hmm. But that's not what I'm looking for. If you react to it, fine. But and approach that way, it gives you the best chance to be in the best body position to cover the most pitches. If I'm looking for a fastball middle end to try to yank, I pretty much eliminated, eliminated every other pitch other than that one. <laughs> no chance on those. <laughs> Nothing else I can hit. So why would I look middle end? I always laugh at the younger kids too, even my son. 2-0, he's looking for a fastball in. I'm like, and he takes a fastball middle away, and I'm going, <laughs> you think he wants to throw you a fastball middle in 2-0? Right. No, because he knows you're looking for a fastball. Right. Exactly. So it's, it's just a thought process of all that. I've, I've been really lucky to have some of the greatest, like, minds, like, hitting-wise, like Walker and Charlie Manuel. Got to t getting to talk to guys like Frank Thomas and Paul Canerco and another great one who's unbelievable is Chase Utley. Like, you want to talk about a smart hitter, he'll ambush you like nobody's business, but he'll only do it once every 22 at-bats. And <laughs> everybody thinks he's taking the first pitch, so they start grooving fastballs, and then he takes off on one. And you're like, yep, got him. And then he'll wait another 20 at-bats to swing at the first pitch again. That's but he was just smart like that. He thought yeah. like that. Aaron and I met here in Las Vegas. You moved out here how long ago to Vegas? I moved my first year – my first off season here was 2000. 
2000. Yeah. So we were kind of right in the middle of our, our big league careers and, and going strong. And we'd start working out together in the off season and had some injuries going on, but we had you, we had Reed Johnson, who you played with at Cal State. Um, we, we all became close. We'd work out at the local community college at Southern Nevada. So I started working out with you and Reed, and I was kind of more on a rehab type deal. I, I torn my labrum and got to see you and Reed and a couple other guys, James Shields, work out at Tim Soder's physical therapy spot here in town and put everybody on a workout program. I'm sitting here laying on a table, getting my shoulder worked on, watching yeah. you guys just get after it. And so talk about your preparation and the work that you put in off the field, like in the weight room and kind of just all that preparation. What was your mindset with all that? Well, I always looked at myself, I don't know, and maybe looking back, you look at guys like Carlos Lee and Frank Thomas and Moises Alou or Willie Mopena or like all these just like donkeys <laughs> that are playing baseball, right? Here I am, I'm like 6'1", 220. I'm not small, but I'm thinking to myself, these guys are huge. Mm -hmm. And so even from, uh, from high school to college to the workouts in college and everything else, I always felt like, look, I might not be the most gifted or talented on the field, but I make, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to outwork every single person on that field. In the off season, in the gym, uh, going out to CS, going to the community college. My goal every day was, and I would always think about it at 5.30 in the morning at, at Tim's place working out. And I would think to myself, I wonder what so-and-so is doing right now. I wonder what so-and-so is doing right now. I, get you, I, be, I guarantee you they're not doing what I'm doing. And that gave me a kind of a bit of confidence going into my baseball part of it in, in competing against these guys. Mm -hmm. Because I felt like, look, I put the time and the effort in. I know I did more than you. I mean, we were there from 530 in the morning to 830 in the morning every day, <laughs> three hours of just nonstop non superset. Mm -hmm. And it gave me an, a feeling of confidence that I was prepared. And no matter what came my way, I was prepared for all the physical strain, strains that go with the season, all the mental stuff, because I did put the time in. It gave me a little edge going, I know that this guy didn't. So, you know, I always played, I always played the game. I think it was always my mentality. I always played the game of baseball kind of with a football mentality. Right. And that was always, that's just how I am. And so I was always just wanting to be the best I could be. It's not so much that I need to be better than or the best. Like, I don't need to win eight MVP trophies. It wasn't about that. It was about I want to be the best that I can be and know that I gave everything I had when I had the opportunity to do it so that when I went home, I could put my head on my pillow and sleep. Because yeah. if I went home with regret going, I didn't give enough today, or I should have ran that ball out a little harder, or I could have cut that ball off in the gap, I mean, that, that would just eat me up at home. So mm -hmm. that's why I kind of played the way I did. I, I wanted to be able to go and sleep at night, knowing that, look, I'm going to come every day, and I'm going to come with everything I got at you every day. Some days it's good, some days it's bad, but it's going to be there, and the effort level is going to be there to give myself an opportunity to be as good as I can. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, 
just the pure effort, right? And you, you're still coaching now in pro ball, right? Are you now? Actually, actually I, I stepped away. I, this was going to be the first year I stepped away. I've been with the White Sox for five years, but right. uh, my son's a freshman in high school this year. So he's playing basketball and he's getting into his high school baseball career. And I wanted to be around a little bit more. So it was, uh, it was a good decision. I, I mean, it doesn't matter now if nobody's doing anything, but <laughs> at least I got to watch his basketball season. He played right. really good basketball. Yeah, so let's talk about your kids. So you, you probably talk to a lot of parents. I, I know I do, and they ask advice about, hey, you know, you're a, you're a big leader. Like, how are you handling your kid? Um, the first question I have for you is, did does he have certain expectations upon himself? Like, dad's a big leader. I got to live up to some expectations. How does he feel about that? He's, he's good. I, I made it a, I made it a priority of mine when he started playing at like six years old, you know, and all the way through to now and he's 15 now. And I've continually repeated it to him over these years. And I coached him from the time he was six and while it was while I was still playing when I come home in the off season, I would coach my travel ball team. And then when I left, I had other people to take my place. I told him all the time, I said, look, your name is not Aaron Rowan, it's McKay Rowan. So just because you have the same last name doesn't mean that you need to live up to what I did mm -hmm. or what at the time what I was doing. I said, you're McKay. I said, you're your own person. And so there's no expectation level on you from me, from anybody else, because you're not me. And I continually repeated that to him to let him know like, look, I know my dad played in the big leagues or whatever, but I'm not him, I'm me. And so I think he has a good separation of the two. That's awesome. Because sometimes it takes a little while to get that set in. And the earlier you can put, put that in their mind, right? It's like, dude, yeah. you're your own guy. Like, He's just, been hearing it for the last nine years, man. I mean, I, I beat it into him. Right. That's awesome. So so you're, you've stepped down from being an outfield coach. Um, you were doing some roving, is that right? I was the, yeah, the outfield and base running coordinator for the White Sox. So I basically I mean, it was responsible for all the outfielders and all the base runners in our entire minor league system. So, you know, you're spring training for seven weeks, and then you go and hit all the different minor league teams and come back home for a couple of weeks, go back out, do it again. And then instructional league for a month and mini camp after the draft, and that's pretty much what it entails. That's awesome. Well, that's awesome. You, you put yourself in a position to now just be home, you know, be present okay. with your family, with your kid. Four years is going to go by fast. <laughs> okay. I mean, there's, there's always pluses and minuses. I miss a lot of the guys that a lot of them who are in the big leagues with the White Sox now that I had the opportunity to work with. And they're just like wonderful guys, guys like Nicky Delmonico, the, uh, Eloy Jimenez, like wait till you see this kid, Louis Robert. He's going to be a rookie this year or mm -hmm. next year, maybe. Okay. Talk about a five-tool guy. So for all you watching this that do the fantasy baseball, pick that dude up. <laughs> he runs like a gazelle, has an absolute can, and it hits tanks. So, yeah, so we got insider tips here. So that's, that's yeah. how we do it. <laughs> yeah. We actually signed him out of Cuba. He's a okay. Cuban defector. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. He's going to be good. a stud. Well, Aaron, I mean, this has been awesome. What would you say is, is – um, as we all wrap up this call, and I appreciate your time here, but what would you say is some – if you're a high school kid, what is some good advice you have for a high school kid that on the mental side of the game, what should they do? Well, I would say 
strive every day for excellence and don't accept anything less. I was actually on a talk with my high school football team and coach yesterday doing this, and I was talking to the players about it. And I was explaining to them about the pyramid effect, okay? Back when you and I were graduating high school in 95, makes us old, I still have hair though. Yeah, you're doing pretty yeah, good. I'm doing all right. Doing real good. Uh, <laughs> but no, back then I had a, a guy come in, my mom and dad had a friend of ours come in. He said, do you realize in our age group, and this is 95, so it's probably a little more now, there are 11 million children or 11 million kids our age playing baseball in the United States. And that doesn't even, that doesn't count up foreign countries. That's just the United States. Right. So that's a big base. Now, as you go through high school and then you go through college and then go through the minor leagues and the big leagues, everybody starts falling off. Guys who aren't mentally tough, who don't have the drive, who don't want it as badly as some others, drugs, gangs. There's a lot of different ways that everybody starts popping off. If you put that in your mind and think about, I need to be, I'm going to be competing against somebody else for my job. And I need to be better than that guy if I want to try to achieve my dream. And so that for me was a driving force of always trying to be better. Put, I wasn't afraid to put the time in. I enjoyed it. I love baseball. I love hitting. Mm-hmm. And I love practicing, you know. So I would say the biggest thing for like high school guys is and it's okay if you're not a guy who you just love to play the game but you're like yeah if I don't go I don't go okay fine there's a lot of those people out there but if you have aspirations of being a professional athlete or making it to the big leagues you have to put things in perspective and in focus so that you can get rid of all the outside distractions and then focus on what you need to do and it's not hard to do and I would say to everybody you, you don't have to be anybody else. You don't have to be a Frank Thomas or Chad Hermanson or an Aaron Rowan or a uh, Jermaine Dye or Jose Canseco. You're, you don't need to be like anybody. All you need to be is the best you. And how do you get that? Mm-hmm. Through effort, focus, drive, and hold on to the idea that nobody, nobody should ever tell you what you can and can't do. When people would tell me, you know how it is, Baseball America or whatever news publication, and they're talking about these up-and-coming players, and they always, you know, they list what they're really good at, but he's faulty in this and he can't do that. That used to drive me. When somebody would tell me that I couldn't do something, I'd be like, okay, I'll show you. And that was something that kept me moving up because I wasn't going to let somebody tell me what I wasn't good at or what I couldn't do. Right. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it's it's really cool to hear how because I, I had stories, too, where Michael Barrett. Right. So we, we're, we were all drafted the same year. And Michael Barrett was him and I were like, I guess, the two top shortstops that year. And we played in the Hawaiian Winter League when we were 18. And he had told me because he was out in Georgia. I'm here in Vegas. He said, hey, dude, I got a story to tell you. He's like, when you, when we were seniors and I was working out my, our, my senior year, I had, a, I had a trainer and he goes, I would, like you said, like I was thinking about, hey, what's Hermanson doing? I, I bet I'm out working Hermanson right now. You know, so there was a kind of that inner competition that it can drive you, right? It can get you out and do the things because working out, sometimes we don't feel like it every day. And 
when, even when you don't feel like it, you still, you got to go do it. Right. Absolutely. And that's, that's, that's what I really appreciate about you and, and working out with three, like we're always there. We're just always there doing it. And, you know, and there's nothing worse in the beginning when you start <laughs> and like two days later, man, you could barely move. You're like, I got to go work out again. Right. Like, yeah. like how do I get out, how do I get out of bed? Right. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Stuff cracking and popping. That's right. Yeah. Well, dude, I'm looking forward to uh, number one scouting your kid over the next few years. It's going to be exciting to him watch him and and Bishop Gorman's going to be a part. We got we got Carl Crawford's kid at Bishop Gorman that's a sophomore right now. Wise, by the way. Yeah, is 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 supposed to be the legit and the bit the real deal. So yeah, man, looking forward to it. I appreciate your time. Anything else you want to add before we go? No, man, it's just great seeing you and. You know, hopefully we can all start social, not social distancing anymore. <laughs> yeah, this is brutal. <laughs> it is. That's yeah. cool, man. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime, brother. Take care of yourself. Okay. All right, you too. We'll see ya. Hey, what's up, guys? I want to thank you for listening to today's episode. You know, if you had any experience playing a sport while growing up, or even now, you know, have a kid playing a sport, you know how important the mental game is. Now, there are many that say it's at least 60% of their sport, and some will even say, it's as high as about 90%. So if the consensus is it's at least 60% of your game, no matter what sport, what are you or what are your son, you know, your daughter doing to work on the mental game? I want to help you out or your athlete out. As I work with athletes at all different ages, they are all different as far as their engagement in a group setting or in one-on-ones. To help give athletes some options, I wanted to hit on doing mental training on their own time, one-on-ones, or even in a group setting. So I wanted to give you some options. My first option is my online course where I created over 40 videos where your athlete can watch, learn, and go through these videos at their own pace. I would think and say that this is great for those athletes that don't wanna be a part of a group setting, or they have thoughts, you know, they don't want anyone to know that I'm actually working on my mental game. Now, these videos come in a yearly membership where they watch the videos, they have access to me through email during the duration of their membership, and they get a one one-on-one call per year. And this is a membership, it's $199 per year. So more, for more information on that, go to mentaledge.training. The second option is for those that really liked engagement. I've been doing live weekly online calls where I pick a topic to coach on. I engage and ask questions with the athletes on how this applies to them. They take notes in their mental game journal and they work on that particular skill or the topic I give them for that week. Now this option is a membership as well and it's $13.99 a month. I also do get a lot of inquiries about one-on-one coaching as well as team coaching, I do do those as well. So you can email me at chad at mentaledge.coach for more details on that. But if you want more information on the links on these memberships that I have, click on the show notes and I can give you all that information there on those websites. But I want to thank you again for listening to this podcast. I do want to make this better. I would love to hear any comments, any suggestions you have where I can make this podcast even better for you and to help you out. I also want to let you know that all these interviews in, on this podcast are also in video form on YouTube. And if you go search Mental Edge Training Coach, 
all these interviews will be there as well. So again, thank you for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Take care.